Hi, psychology nerds. Welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast on psychology out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, host, and I'm here with my co-host and my friend, chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungess. How are you, G? I am doing well today. Um, you know, it's getting cold like winter here in Wisconsin, um, but it's also a really exciting time. You know, uh, Halloween is tomorrow, and since we're not really handing out candy, I have a bowl full of chocolate to eat this weekend, so I'm excited about that. Uh, nice. And election week, uh, or election day next week, I'm very excited. I'm working the polls for the first time in my life, too, so like some cool stuff happening. How about you? Well, first of all, you know it's going to be fun, and maybe, uh, who knows how we'll be feeling, but when this comes out, it will actually have been about two weeks since the election, so people will maybe know the outcome at that point. Maybe. Um, and uh, you will have already worked the polls and eaten all the candy, so <laughs> very good. I, I have, uh, so I have, a, I have a thing. We need to clear the air on something uh, before we get started, and so I know that I'm springing this on you, but um, for about a decade now, I have been vilified for having once refused to remove a giant bug from your back as we walked through Mac Hall. And you, you remember this and know this, and every now and then you bring it up, the time I refused. Now, this has never been how I remembered it. I remembered saving your life uh, from an enormous bug. <laughs> Can you tell me what emerged on Facebook uh, memory this week, Georgina? Yes, so a fabulous feature of Facebook is that it, it pops up memories, and this memory, was from 12 years ago is when this incident happened. Uh, and I admitted in this post that Ryan saved my life from a giant bug on Facebook. And yes. so my memory of you refusing and then <laughs> throwing your shoe at me, which might have happened. I think that that is actually how you saved me. Um, but it- Yes, I, saved so your you. life. Yes. That is a quote. Save your life. <laughs> I think I owe you my life now. And so, um, so, and my dog approves of, of that as Excellent. Just barking Excellent. in the background. <laughs> uh, I needed to get that out there for the world because I feel like for the last 12 years, you've been telling everyone I know about the time I refused to remove a bug from your back. So I'm, I needed to, to let everyone know. I, I am, I'm happy that we've cleared that up. I still will like, still probably vilify you in certain <laughs> settings use it to my own advantage you know uh fake news and all of that <laughs> all right and today so, we're sadly missing our intern hunter yes. so shout out to hunter as you're listening to this you know two episodes ago we were so excited because hunter had just interviewed and we were talking about interviewing and hunter had just interviewed and got a new job and we were so happy for him and now he has to work and so he can't be here and i'm like wait a second yeah. we should have just talked smack about him and then they wouldn't have hired him it's true so he is he is still part of the team and still uh, involved but he is not here today which is a drag so but we do have two awesome, awesome people here today. So let's introduce them. Um, first, we have Dr. Julie, Julie, yeah, sorry, Dr. Julie Case. She earned her PhD in fiction from the University of Cincinnati and an MA in English from the University of California, Davis. 
She, she teaches courses in fiction, creative nonfiction, digital writing, and literature with a particular emphasis in game studies, speculative fiction, and world building. How's it going, Julie? Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. I'm super, super happy you are here. And our other guest is Dr. Chris McAllister-Williams. He holds a PhD in English from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and an MFA in poetry from Columbia College in Chicago. Uh, he teaches poetry, creative writing, digital and interactive media, and avant-garde poetics at UW-Green Bay while making poems, games, and weird internet artifacts. How's it going, Chris? Good. Uh, thanks for having me. And Ryan, if you have a bug on me, uh, don't throw a shoe at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not convinced I did throw a shoe at her, but you know what? This is the closest version we're going to get to the uh, thing, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick I'm with it. I'm on that. record. Now it's like this is official. Yes. Yeah, documented. <laughs> I will not. I will gently remove it from you. So <laughs> there, you there you go. Well, it's so, so fun. We have two guests today, uh, which is really terrific. And I'm so excited um, to talk today. Although you wouldn't be able to guess what we're going to talk about <laughs> from the introduction uh, and from the degrees that you both have earned. So Ryan, Tell the listeners about what we're talking about today. So, so today we are tackling gamification, which is in some ways how I became, uh, how I got to know you both. I, you know, one of the first times that we, we met work-wise was, was um, when we were talking about the Center for Game Studies um, that you're both really involved in here at UW-Green Bay. So I want to start with just a sense of how did you become interested in games? Um, Whoever sure, wants I... to go. There we go, Julie. Yeah, is that cool? I'll go ahead and go first. So I had kind of a weird childhood um, in that my parents, my mother was a librarian with the military. So we lived in West Germany. This was the 80s. And as a kid growing up in West Germany in the 80s, I felt so confused about my identity and like what it meant to be American. And I remember being, you know, six or seven and my dad bringing home our Atari and I just like fell in love immediately. And so I think for me, games started off as this tie or this connection to American culture and this way of kind of trying to understand what America was about. When we came back to America, um, I was 10 and I really wanted a Nintendo. And I remember just playing that so much because it was like this thing I could do and I could master. And it was a way of kind of adjusting to this cultural movement. And I think too, as a writer, I'm really interested in stories and storytelling. And as a kid, you know, my mom was a librarian. So I spent so much time in libraries and I loved reading, but I also really loved the stories that you encounter in games in particular, like the infocom things where you're typing in and you're reading and, you know, writing commands, like pick up the book, ring the doorbell. I just thought that was the best kind of storytelling experience where you were able to be engaged and participate in the story. I, I, I loved it. I thought it was the best thing ever and just kind of never really grew out of it. It's something I just always think is really fun and makes me super happy every day. Very nice. What about you, Chris? Uh, well, I, got kind of, I guess for me, games have always been there, right? They've been there with board games or computer games. I remember like building a computer when I was a kid with my brother to specifically play like games like Doom when it came out. Right? That was a big thing for us. Like it was a touchstone for me in my youth, certainly. Um, and it kind of went away, but it was never something I thought about, like I could do this and talk about this seriously or talk about this and think about this, uh, like kind of piece, take it apart and think about how these things function until I started studying avant-garde poetics. Um, particularly thinking about things like LIPO and things that use a procedural generation as a way to make things. And as I was studying this, I was thinking, well, games have been doing this 
like that's been my 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 intro to thinking about this is through procedurally generated games in which an algorithm is determining what's happening next, right? And so when I started studying stuff from the avant-garde and you know the early part of the 20th century who were doing this too, I saw these things kind of connecting a bit. I'm like, well, okay, how can I build this? Think, how can I find ways to connect this even more? So like my interest in games, particularly now, is an extension of my interest in poetics. Um, I decided to see these things kind of be combined. Um, you know, my childhood obsessions, perhaps, uh, kind of filtered through now, um, I, I guess, an, an expertise in poetics. So. Wow. So I'm going to need a definition of avant-garde poetics quick, if that's sure. possible to do quickly. Um, well, that's another podcast, I think. Uh, but <laughs> Um, yeah, so anything that I think that when you think about avant-garde means the avant-garde, right? So we typically talk about this, we talk about people on the cutting edge of poetics. Um, for me, it's the early part of the 20th century, surrealism, data, uh, things we kind of see now, like, oh yeah, that was a thing that emerged out of the First World War that we don't kind of take for granted now, but at the time it was hugely important. Recently, the thing more like cyber poetics is a big part of this, especially in the 90s up to now. I'm sure Julie can attest to some of this stuff. Hypertext being a part of thinking about what the internet can do to a poem um, is part of that too. And a lot of it's based on games, like the idea of procedural generative stuff that a lot of video games use and some board games use too. So this is a, a podcast called Psychology and Stuff. And so um, it was really interesting to hear you uh, sort of the origin story of your passion for games. And I wonder um, if that ties into some of your um, psychological development and your identity development. Those are things uh, that we love to talk about in psychology. And so do you, do you see the psychology in your passion for games or in games in, in general? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Go, Chris. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. I, um, yeah, I think so. Part of me, what I love about games is the sense of community and collaboration, I think. Uh, the games I value particularly are often collaborative games. It means that we're working together to accomplish a goal rather than kind of working against each other. Um, and for me, it becomes a way to engage in empathy somewhat. Um, and, and I think that's an extension of that. And I'm not sure if that's how you're defining psychology, but I think that's probably wrapped up in that somewhat. Um, for me, it became a way to connect with people, particularly my family, who, um, you know, I come from a family of engineers, um, and I'm decidedly not that. Um, but my brother and I have always been able to kind of talk about and talk through um, stuff and, you know, all the stuff about our lives, but also everything else through the uh, act of playing games, whether it be video games, board games, or whatever. And it's been a nice way for us to kind of be involved and stay involved in each other's lives, particularly managing family dynamics through this kind of other thing, right? That we both value and find important. So it's been, for me, that's probably why outside of all the cool academic stuff I can do with it, why it's been such a mainstay of my personal life as well. I think I'll just jump off of that and say that that actually speaks to a lot of what I think I respond to in games too, is right, it's, it's, it's kind of, they always talk about in games, this idea of the magic circle, right? Where you walk in and the rules are kind of different than in the everyday world. And so it is a really interesting way of communicating with people that, that sort of that allows you to bypass the social rules that you might follow in everyday life, right? So if your family tends to be a little bit more closed off, like mine is, when you're playing a game, you can talk about things suddenly that you might not be able to. And I think as a writer, I'm always really interested in looking at really closely at human relationships and character. And I like the way that games and stories can 
have the potential to put people really close with topics that might be difficult, but in a way that makes them feel comfortable. So, you know, even though I think a lot of people look at games as like, oh, entertainment, lighthearted, I think a lot of games are not always that, right? That there are ways for games to really grip you and to make you come face to face with things that can be challenging or difficult, but that somehow by having it be a game, and I think this is true for fiction also, that that makes it a little bit more palatable and a little bit more easy to engage with. You know, I'm, you're hitting on all sorts of things that I'm, I'm fascinated by. But um, one of them is the, the connection piece that you just talked about that I've heard. So um, I've heard Linda Holmes say this, the host of Pop Culture Happy Hour with NPR, and talk about how, and I think this is unnecessarily uh, gendered, but talk about how games exist along with sports as a way for men to sit next to each other and talk about things uh, so that they don't actually have to face each other. Um, while they're doing it. And I, I, I don't really believe that that's true, but I do actually acknowledge that there are times when I think, Chris, when you're talking about your relationship with your brother, I was thinking about when I was a kid and I would sit on the, and we would play video games against each other. Those were some of the more meaningful conversations we've had, we had, especially when we were young, you know, and that there is something, this is the, the counseling psychologist in me, um, there is something about not facing the person that you feel a little less vulnerable when you're sort of doing this shared activity that you can have maybe a tougher conversation than if you're looking each other in the eye. Um, and so I think about that when I think about the, the connections that you can form by doing uh, some of these activities. I'm, I'm also thinking about what you said about empathy, because I think about this all the time in the context of of reading and how reading fiction in particular feels like an empathy building activity. I've not thought about it in terms of games before. So I'm wondering if either of you wants to say more about that. Sure, I can start this one off if that's right. Um, yeah, I think about this a lot. I'm really, really interested in the ways that games can promote empathy, not just with fictional characters in the game or fictional scenarios, but also with other people that you might be playing with in social games. Both of those things are really, really interesting to me. So I think about one of my very favorite games is a digital game called Firewatch, which is not a game that is probably what you would think of when you're thinking about typical games. So you play as this sort of middle-aged guy who has had has lost his wife to adult early onset dementia and he's going to go be a fire watch in Wyoming to kind of deal with some of the demons that have come out of that and while he's there you're the main mechanism of the game is this conversation that you're having with Delilah who's also a fire watch in another tower and so basically the game involves walking through the woods and I think that one thing that's cool about the game is you're going through the woods you're picking up garbage you're trying to like um, reinforce rules about proper relationship to the forest to avoid fires, right? Which I think is a really cool way to think about games teaching people how to engage with the environment and sort of accept environmental stewardship. But you're also, every single character in, in that game is dealing with grief, is dealing with mistakes, is dealing with, you know, things that they're wrestling with, decisions they've made that are not, that are bad, just tragedy. And I feel like the game, by making you walk through the woods, there's not really a soundtrack. You're just thinking and thinking about these characters and their stories. It's really, really strong, empathetic experience for characters that are not initially that don't seem initially very empathetic right that that might you know some of them are alcoholic some of them have you know come back from the war and are have psychological issues right like these are not characters you would necessarily relate to automatically right and the game makes you do that it makes you think about how we're all kind of flawed and dealing with these difficult things it's really really awesome and i, I just love that games can do that yeah i build off that somewhat um so i think we think of like games as one kind of monolithic thing 
like there's Halo, there's like first person shooters where you're taking the guise of warfare, right? There's Super Mario Brothers where you're just plumbers jumping around, but it's not that way, right? There's all kinds of games that kind of exist to do all kinds of interesting things, particularly like Firewatch that Julie said here. One of my favorites along the same line of that is this War of Mine, in which it's a game about a war, but you're not taking the guise of a soldier. Rather, you're playing a group of civilians trying to survive in a besieged city. Right, so it's, it's, it's flipping the narrative of that somewhat and thinking about what does this look like? How can we explore this? Uh, but there's also a game, one of my favorite games, I think about empathy, particularly not, um, not expressing empathy for a fictional character, but for other people, is a game called Kind Words, which came out last year. Um, and that game is essentially, it's a game in which you write nice letters to people, real people, over the internet. Um, hmm. People would shout and say, I need support about this, I need help with this. Um, and your, your goal then is to be nice to that person, provide anonymous support. And it exists as an antidote often to toxic gaming culture. We've all heard stories about people being horrible to each other online, not just in games, but Twitter, any sort of social media, right? This game exists kind of as an intervention in that. Um, hmm. And what I think is important is that it's a game, right? This is a game doing this work. It's not just saying, um, you know, it's, uh, it's using the language of games and, the, and sort of the, what games can do to provide a space to provide, like actually do empathy, right? The work of empathetic listening, empathetic writing in the space. Um, and to me, it feels so important that's a game as opposed to like a uh, website or a Twitter feed or whatever. So how is it different? You said it's important that it's a game. How is it then different than just um, a, a website where you would write nice letters? What makes it a game? Um, well, I think it, to me, it's, it's important who's playing it. Right. Um, the fact that this is a game available on the platforms that are available to most games like Steam, right? In which you can play a game like League of Legends, which famously has a toxic community of it. And then there's all things that's right next to it. There's an alternative there to how to engage with people as opposed to having it on a website, which may not have the same reach. Um, yeah, it's uh, the, 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 the creators of games are pretty open about that. That's the reason it exists right? mm -hmm. as an alternative to the way to interact with people. So you're both teachers, um, to what degree do you try and include uh, games and gamification in the classes you teach? Yep, so I think about that a lot. And I guess one thing that's probably useful to talk about is kind of the, it's not the difference, but the ways in which gamification can be understood in a variety of ways, right? Mm -hmm. There's gamification, with the, the goal of like increasing engagement or um, helping people engage with something that might be difficult, right? Like a fitness app, or I don't know, I had a driving um, car insurance app for a while that was supposed to help me like drive safer. Um, and I feel like that is, is often associated with gamification in the classroom. But from my perspective, I think it's a little bit different, right? It's not about using games in the classroom to get students engaged. It's more about thinking about the ways that learning happens in games and how we as educators can use those same tools in our classroom. Even, you know, in some ways that might mean using a game in the classroom, but a lot of times it doesn't, right? So if you think about in a game, a lot of them have very complicated rules. And I remember as a kid, you know, I'd get a game at the store and while my parents were driving me home, I'd read the instruction book so that I could get home and play it right away. Like nobody reads instruction books anymore. They don't exist, right? You play a game and the game has to make you want to learn it, right? It has to make you learn something really, really complicated. One of my favorite games is World of Warcraft. And that game is very complicated. I've been playing it for years and I still am just, I think, an average player. There's a lot to learn. And so how can we as educators kind of tie into the thing that happens in games where you want 
want to learn, where you feel this hunger to like try and, and, you know, to get better, right? Where you're, you're internally motivated, where it's not necessarily about the external motivations like points and leaderboards and that kind of thing, but more about using internal motivation and giving people options. So when I think about using games in the classroom, for me, that often means giving students choices. So allowing them to engage with the content in different ways, um, having modes for failure that aren't like low stakes assignments where, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't, you can try again, right? It's not just you submit something once and it's done, but being able to give things a try multiple times. Try to incorporate a lot of teamwork. I think a lot about avatars, since I think identity is really important for me in games. How can I get students to take on identities that are related to the content? So for instance, in my intro creative writing course, even though a lot of the students are just taking that as a general education credit, they don't identify as writers. I ask them every week to think about how they are working as writers in this particular exercise as, as a way of kind of asking them to step into that identity um, or taking on problems that are really hard. I think there are a lot of ways of using game design in the classroom that can be really useful and beneficial that aren't necessarily like here and playing a game in the classroom. Although I also do that too, because that's something that, that's important. Yeah, I'd echo a what Julie says too. I think it's a, a distinction between like a playing a game in the classroom design so you mean doing what games do right like the thing about what julie said about agency and player choice but choice in the classroom in particular for me also games allow us to kind of inhabit a world which is strange and unfamiliar which is uncanny right a world that's like our own but not our own um and by trying to position a classroom that does that for me particularly through constraint and procedure which is a thing that games do a lot with um enables students to think about their work in a different light right um for me, also the idea of progression is pretty important. Games place a large um, importance on progression, right? You, you study this le point level and you get to this point level. We, we love that metric, right? And we see this a lot when we think about gamification, particularly with marketing, with badges and levels and everything like that. But for me, in the classroom, I place a big point in progression as in like you started off with this type of poem and you ended up with this type of poem. Like showing that and like having that built into the classroom, um, for me, it's been uh, helpful for students to kind of see uh, as a way to measure growth, right? Um, so again, I think for me, the ways to use games in the classroom, although we do play games, we certainly play games like Firewatch and other games in my, sometimes in my poetry classrooms, because a lot of those games, um, I would argue, do a lot of stuff that poems do. Um, but for me, it's more about thinking what games do rather than saying, we're gonna like throw up a Jeopardy board or something. Although we do that too sometimes. What is the role of competition uh, in, gamification, particularly in the, in the classroom? Um, I think, you know, when you think about games and competition can be good. People love competition. Um, I value collaboration more than competition, um, partly because I think that's just who I am as a person. I always get like anxious when people, uh, people uh, tell me to compete. Um, but I think that for, for, for some folks, I know that can be a value, right? To, uh, to a way to hold each other accountable somewhat. But for my ways, particularly how I think of things, is more of a, a collaborative thing than more of a competition. But for me, I don't know how Julie feels about this. Let's kind of approach it. Yeah, I am definitely on the same page as you. I think I, competition is not a reason why I play games, although it is sometimes a reason why I like run, right, or do sports. Um, but yeah, I don't necessarily feel like that has a, a huge place in the classroom necessarily, um, unless it is like competing with, like you said, previous versions of yourself or previous attempts, right? And trying to get better with earlier versions of yourself. 
but yeah, I'm much more interested in promoting collaboration and teamwork and helping students kind of develop those skills. That being said, something just occurred to me that like, when I think when people particularly talk about the creative writing markets, which can be kind of very competitive, right? We're competing for jobs, you're competing for book deals, you're competing in contests often, especially with poetry. Um, competition can often kind of be tuned to unhealthy degrees. You start to view your colleagues as competitors. So part of what I try to do is saying, you're not competing against your, you know, your, your peers here, you're competing against the, like, um, the canon, right? You're trying to blow up the canon, competing against that. You're competing against Homer, or you're competing against T.S. Eliot or you know, Sylvia Plath. These are, this is your competition, going down the books, um, rather than like the person sitting next to you. Because I think it helps it reframe it in perhaps a healthier sense of the word and rather than like um, trying to take down your, your, your classmate, right? Absolutely, I love that. I think there's also like the, the term that you use, Chris, like leveling up or uh, um, that, that kind of concept. I think that for me, that really works well when you think about the growth mindset of, of you know, like a, a very popular um, psychology, maybe-ish principle of, of, you know, like returning back. If you fail, you go back and you start again and you go again and you, you build this resilience. Um, and so I think that there's some real power in um, the concept of, of resilience and, and persistence uh, that gaming can provide for a classroom. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. You know, I think you point out one thing too that you mentioned here that that's a growth mindset is kind of what we see in games. A lot of what games do are already existing in classrooms, right? What, what is like the games took, a, they had defined them a bit differently, but the idea of like leveling up, sure, that's a growth mindset. The idea of failure, many of us build, like, build into our classrooms. Um, there's like a whole, there's a great book called The Art of Failure, which is about like failing in games, but more largely it's about failing just in general, right? So what games aren't necessarily doing anything new, but I think what we think about gamification, and particularly we think about uh, games application in the classroom, we're just thinking about more critically of how these things maybe intersect more. I would throw another term in there too, that scaffolding feels like something that games have been doing successfully for decades and decades. I mean, they are built on the idea that if that they get harder as you get better at them um, to keep you interested and to keep you going. So I've been thinking about what you, you both mentioned collaborative games. I wonder if you could, I know of one collaborative game. So I, I should going to go on record to say that I am not actually a huge game person. I think you both know this about me already, but I, um, I have not, in my adult life, I've not played a lot of video games or, um, or board games or things like that. And actually part of it is for the exact reason Chris mentioned before, which is I start to get nervous about those kinds of competitions, especially like performative games. I'm thinking more of board games right now, but things like Pictionary or Charades or things like that, those are literal nightmares for me. And so I'm, but I am intrigued. This is, by the way, is, comes from being the youngest of four where, you know, those things were always associated with getting picked on and making mistakes publicly. So I, I'm curious, what are some collaborative games? Uh, I know of Pandemic, which seems quite appropriate right now, but what are some others that are out there that, uh, that, that are, are known? Yeah, so I think there are a ton, and I think you can think a little bit about genre too. So right now this semester, I'm teaching a world building class. It's collaborative world building. So as a group, they're working together to create worlds and then as a storytelling exercise, tell stories using the characters and settings and rules of the world that they've created together. And a lot of that um, pedagogy is rooted in um, 
role-playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and Pathfinder and stuff. And I feel like that is a really collaborative type of game that has, you know, you're fighting monsters sometimes, but you're also telling a story together. And I love that experience. I think that's, that to me is, I don't know, Chris, if you feel this way, but I've always wondered, you know, I've been in a lot of creative writing classrooms, a lot of storytelling environments in academia, and it's just not, no one ever talks about role-playing games and storytelling and role-playing games, but it's a really fun way to engage with storytelling and to work together and to learn about narrative and character development and motivation and, and all of those things. Um, I think are really great. I also think that, you know, even in games that have more, that can seem like more of a competitive or, um, you know, mainstream environment, like Chris was talking about League of Legends earlier, I think as a World of Warcraft player, I think of that as a collaborative game, even though the community there is really complicated and not always the greatest. But one thing I love about it is, you know, if you're raiding, you're with 25 people and you're all in a, you know, trying to do this very unique thing. Like everyone has their different role that they're trying to play and you're, you have a goal that you're sharing. Um, it's just a really complicated social mechanism of, of trying to herd all of these elephants and get them to follow the same rules. And, and it is, it's amazing when it works. It's just the best, the best, most thrilling feeling. Yeah. Um... I feel like the, the, the answer one of the things that Julie posited earlier, like, um, you know, people have been telling stories in role-playing games um, ever since like Gary Gygax, right? In the seventies here, um, the one of the people involved in creating Dungeons and Dragons. Um, but I think it hasn't got a lot of capital in, um, you know, academic storytelling settings because it feels like it's just a game. And ignoring like the real kind of important work that can be done there, particularly around collaborative storytelling. Cause I think there's still a myth that Writers exist like you know, writing their masterpiece in a garage above or like a bat down in the basement, a torture genius, right? Um, and that the fact that we can talk to each other and kind of shape this together and grow something together. And part of like, well, my, why well, be part of my uh, charge here is to push against that. But to answer your question, Ryan, about another collaborative game, there's a game I love. It's a board game called Mysterium, um, in which one player plays as a um, unfortunately deceased uh, individual, a ghost, um, and the other players play detectives. Um, kind of uh, psychic detectives trying to figure out what happened to that ghost. And the ghost communicates through a series of images. Uh, they have these cards, you, kind of, you combine images, you, pre you, pre you present um, visions. And it's all about a source of logic. It's about, um, you don't get like exactly like dreams are, right? Um, so then it becomes a collaborative sort of, I would say, um, I guess it emphasizes empathy, trying to figure out what this person suggests, again, the mindset, see how they view the world and why would they give me these cards to figure out who killed you, right? Um, and it's, uh, everybody's working together to kind of solve this. Um, and it becomes a, a great way to engage in two of my favorite things, which is a collaboration and also associative logics and nonlinear thinking, right? Um, and it's, it is, the things that I think collaborative games as opposed to like um, competitive games, not that competitive games don't highlight this, but I think collaborative games especially highlight this, um, the skill to kind of work together here. And another collaborative game, I think some of the best collaborative games don't have a point value associated with them like Pictionary or like Cranium, which is this like uh, public embarrassment theater, right? right. Um, uh, so yeah, I think finding games that don't do that, but rather encourage people to work together to a certain objective. Um, we'll make a game review yet, Ryan, I swear. We'll get you there. It's funny how, um, I, when I remember my childhood, um, it, it was not filled with these beautiful um, games that you're describing. Uh, my brother was a Dungeons and Dragons player, but uh, me uh, uh, as his younger sibling, I just thought it was what the weird kids did in our basement. Like, and so it, 
is there still that stereotype uh, out there about these games as as opposed to like uh, one of the the you know like shooting games? I don't even know the names of them. <laughs> yeah, like is there a, is there a difference in the type of player and the type of community out there? So um, I think that stereotype has been lessened somewhat, particularly because of its sort of, it's become now sort of um, al courant to reference it in popular culture. For example, Stranger Things, right? Stranger Things is a hugely popular show on Netflix, a bunch of kids playing Dungeons and Dragons in the basement in the 80s, right? Um, and there's also celebrities are getting involved with this. Um, I can't remember his name, I think Joe Manteglio maybe? I can't remember his name. The guy from Magic Mike, uh, famous uh, Dungeons and Dragons player, right? Uh, Stephen Colbert played Dungeons and Dragons. Like, people are saying this is what I've done now um, to uh, kind of lose some of that stereotype, I think. And there's also big business with this. Uh, there's a lot of people who are doing what's called an actual play, uh, which means they actually show the Dungeons and Dragons game being played through platforms like Twitch, a streaming platform. Um, well, famous one of these is Critical Role, right? That has millions of people who watch this thing. Um, and a dedicated fan base um, helps that it's... Uh, done by a bunch of voice actors who can kind of get into their roles, right? So it becomes half performance and half storytelling. Um, so yeah, I think that the, the, uh, the sort of stigma of a bunch of smelly teenagers in a basement um, eating Cheetos and Coiffe and Mountain Dew has been somewhat lessened, um, at least I hope. That's what, in my dream of dreams, perhaps that's what I think. I don't know how Julie feels about it. I guess from my perspective, yeah, I agree. It's definitely seems a lot more mainstream, a lot more accepted, especially now during the pandemic. I feel like everyone is playing games as a way of finding some kind of joy um, in the midst of all of the sort of other issues. I think as a female player, I have definitely noticed a change, you know, throughout my life of the number of women playing games and the sort of acceptance that women have in games. And that's been really great to see. I'd still like to see a little bit more of that. And I think too, it's great. I love being here and I love the work that we can do here. I think I would even like to see more acceptance of games and academic contents because I feel like that's kind of still lagging behind a little bit. I think people are a little more reluctant to accept games in the same vein as you know we do as academics, things like books and movies. You know, I think there's a lot of critical work that can be doing that can be done in games just across the board. And I think that could definitely be developed more. So I'm curious, as we finish up, what do you think it will take to do more of that? Because it's, I mean, I, I'm just, you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right. And especially as we talk about it, I realize what, how much bigger a world this is. But what do you think it takes to, to get maybe the academic community to be more accepting, more willing to critique, more whatever? I think part of it is... Um, you know, as, you know, people get older, we'll have younger people that have grown up with a lot more types of games and a lot more access to games. And I think, too, as people kind of recognize the importance of teaching games to help younger people engage with the different mechanisms, because it is a really complicated community. There are, you know, there are as many great things as there are about games. There are also a lot of things that are tricky or ways that people can get manipulated or addicted or, you know, like there's a lot of stuff that people have to engage with. And so I feel like the more we can kind of recognize that these aren't just things that we're going to let our young people learn about on their own, but like actively kind of take a role in society of mentoring each other and helping us to engage more effectively with digital environments and the communities that's around them, um, that that will kind of filter to the academic community also. Yeah, and I think that's probably the work that uh, Julie and I are trying to do with our Center for Games and Interactive Media here at UW Green Bay, 
is to okay. show uh, our colleagues um, and ourselves, they bring people in to talk about like, hey, this is how you use games, this is what games can do, um, and talk about all the stuff that is great and also problematic about some games, I mean, game community and game culture as a whole. Um, because as we've talked about some of this podcast, we're doing some of this work already. Let's think about how games can also be part of that conversation. Very nice. We are about to transition into our final uh, segment here, positive note. But before we get to that, do either of you want to just throw out uh, any final thoughts, any final words, anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? I think I'm good. Thank you all so much for these thoughtful questions. It's great to chat with you. Yeah, just appreciate to talk about games and, and storytelling anytime. Yeah. And, you know, I should have mentioned this at the outset, but this is actually sort of a special episode because it's part of a, it's a, a part one and part two sort of thing where you're going to be back on a sibling podcast, Cannonball, uh, pretty soon here. So, in fact, this may have come out after the Cannonball episode comes out, oddly enough. So, um, but we, uh, so we're going to get a chance to talk more about this. Um, and, and in that one, we're going to talk about canonical games, which I'm excited to hear your thoughts on that as well. So if people are loving this, they should listen to that episode uh, too. Um, Gee, are you ready to talk about our positive note? We decided we're, what did we say we're going to talk about? So we, we decided since we're talking all about games that we should share some positive memory of um, playing a, a game. And we also invited our guests uh, to share a, a positive memory. Um, should I go first? Should I go for it? Yeah. My... So um, I, I know Ryan knows this, but the listeners and Chris and Julie don't know that I'm a very musical person. I'm, um, I grew up singing, I play the cello, I play the piano, and uh, my whole family is very musical, and my kids are very musical as well, and I love, love, love when Guitar Hero came out, um, and it it sort of changed our whole family dynamic, um, where we would just all just like scream, sing, and play that guitar. We got the drum set. I like decked us out we had three guitars and and the microphone and a drum set and we just would rock out you know like no sleep till brooklyn was my jam <laughs> and uh, so that is a positive memory for me um because it was like uh like chris was saying it was we are all in the room together doing something um and it created conversations like my son's like this song is weird mom what is it about and so like a whole conversation about um where the music came from and, and things that we would have never talked about as a family so that is my positive memory of games and, and that's a collaborative game right am i right that that's a collaborative Absolutely. game okay <laughs> um nice so i uh i have something actually similar, except it was just last weekend, and it's going to feel like out of nowhere, especially given what I've said about, about not always loving games, is that my kids, uh, so I actually said going into the weekend, I want to play a game this weekend. That's the one thing I'm putting like on our family to-do list. Um, we've gotten in kind of a rut on weekends of maybe me and Tina working a little too much, and the kids spending a little too much time on screens, and us not really doing much, and so I said, let's, let's play a board game of some kind. And we went to our game closet, which is quite full, to be honest with you. And um, one of the things immediately the kids picked easily the, the last game in the, in the closet that I would have wanted them to pick, which was Monopoly. And I said, 
Ooh, really? Monopoly? And we tried, we kind of hemmed and hawed, like, oh, maybe we could find something else. And then finally I said, look, if, there's no reason to own Monopoly if we're not going to play Monopoly. So let's just do it and we'll try. And I tried as hard as I could to prep them for the fact that no one has ever played Monopoly and had it not end in a fight and that we just need to like <laughs> work through that. Um, but so one, we did actually set a time limit. I read through the instructions and there is a, there is a super short suggestion. If you want to play a super short game, you just set a time limit and you play to that, play to that. So I did that. It was like an hour and a half. Um, and, but we honestly had a blast. Like there was some, there was some sadness, there was some uh, disappointment. And of course I use it as a way to critique capitalism for them. And uh, we, we had a lot of fun uh, talking about it. There's also tons of great research out there about, um, about Monopoly and how that I happen to know from another class I teach that um, about how uh, basically th this researcher found that when you give someone a bunch of advantages when they're playing Monopoly, um, they turn into jerks and as they're winning and they just, so basically what they found is this person, they, they had them play a game. The person had all these advantages that were built into how they played and they knew they had those advantages and they still, um, uh, they ate more pretzels than the other person. They, uh, they talked a lot of smack during the game afterwards. They sort of, you know, games explained why they were one and, you know, what they're, and even though they obviously had these advantages. So, and I will admit, I saw some of that from my uh, youngest who was, who was winning at the time we ended. But, but honestly, it was, we had a good time. Like we, it was fun to play it. We actually even left the board up uh, so that we could, uh, we could come back to it later. So there you go. All right, I want to hear from Chris and Julie on this. Hey, who's going first? Chris, go first. Great, thanks. Um, <laughs> so uh, it shouldn't surprise, uh, I guess, anybody listening to this now that like, when we're talking about collective game experience, right? Um, so I've run a weekly game of Dungeons and Dragons for the past almost three years now. Um, I started it after I graduated my PhD and realized I didn't have a job. I just kind of like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to do this now. Um, it became a good way to connect with people who had moved away. Um, you know, many of us who have gone to grad school can attest to the fact that you make these friends in grad school and then you all just kind of disperse across the country often. Um, so I had friends all over the place and my brother back in Michigan, people out in California, um, people in Colorado. Um, and it became a way for me to kind of keep in touch with each other and kind of be a part of each other's lives uh, through this game. Um, and I run in and we tell stories together and it's great. And it's been something that's been there like a consistent part in my life when my life has not been so consistent. Not just a pandemic, but like my mom died during this um, and it became a way for like my brother and I to talk with people about this without having to be like, let's have a big conversation about it. It became away like that third thing we've talked about. Like you're saying next to each other, playing this game, but talking about other stuff while doing this. In addition to being fun and having, um, you know, telling a story together and seeing inventiveness and creativity come from people who I don't think realized they had that inside themselves. Like to kind of, take on a, a guise of a character and think of how this, would this character act, right? Uh, so it became like, this its own sort of creature now. Um, and I've been doing it, like, like it's the thing I've done the longest, I think, of any sort of creative endeavor in my life, right? So much so that like, now we're just completely telling stories on our own with this thing. Um, so it's become kind of a touchstone uh, for all of us to keep track of each other's lives. Like one of my good friends, like he didn't have kids. Now he has three kids, right? Um, so it's just like, we see, we see each other kind of grow and evolve throughout this thing. Um, it's been, I guess, the metric to what I've watched to be part of each other's existence. So that 
I guess it's always, it's always a positive move to me every Sunday. So that's really nice. I like hearing that. That's awesome, Chris. I think my memory is really a little bit similar to Georgina's. I love rhythm games. I like Guitar Hero and Rock Band. I play a lot of there's the singing karaoke game by myself in my house at night. It just makes me so happy. I feel like I've been thinking a lot. I think as a storyteller, one thing that interests me about games is the way that they can kind of narrow the boundary between the fictional world and the real world, that there can be a lot of slippage between that. And so I've been thinking about that a lot in terms of body image, right? I think as a woman, you know, we have a lot of things to think about as far as body image goes. That's something that a lot of women deal with. And so, you know, how does my avatar help me feel more powerful in my own body or stronger about who I am as a person? And so one thing I was really looking forward to was um, getting a VR headset. So I just got an Oculus 2, which I'm so excited about. I was a little nervous because I don't know much about VR, but I was like, a little worried about the motion sickness. But it's been amazing. And my very favorite game, I haven't played a lot because so I just got it a couple weeks ago, is Beat Saber, which is kind of like a rock band game where you have, you have the headset on and then you have these two controllers and they turn into cool lightsabers. And then there's a song that plays and these blocks come flying at you and you have to hit them with a lightsaber and there are arrows that tell you which direction, there are circles like you can just, and you get more points the wider your swings are. So it just feels amazing. It is the most amazing physical experience because there's music, you're kind of like dancing, but you don't have to worry if anyone's looking at you. And I'm sure it looks completely ridiculous. But I always, I think as part of someone in a pandemic who has a lot of restrictions about where we can go and how we can go there and who we can be around, it's one of the most exciting body experiences that I've had lately where I just get done playing that and I'm sweaty and I'm out of breath and I just feel so powerful and so strong that it, it makes me happy every time. That's that awesome. is great stuff. Thank you both so very, very much. Where can, um, where can people find out more about you and more about the center and all of that stuff? Certainly the UWGB website. Are either of you on Twitter or anywhere else that uh, people can find you? No, not Twitter? Oh, <laughs> it is, it is um, okay not to be on Twitter, believe me. <laughs> well, I would say that Twitter, it kind of holds true. Like, I'm not so sure Twitter is a good enterprise we should be engaging in. It's not for me, at least. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear that. Yeah, I have been increasingly questioning. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, but I am increasingly thinking that maybe that's not the best thing to do. I do have a website if people are interested in that. And yeah, yes. Chris and I are working on putting together some online uh, websites and stuff for the Center for Games and Interactive Media. Right. Yeah, I'll get those to you. The links to those, like same now, maybe just include a link to them in like the description or something. Would that be easier? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so and, and at a minimum, people can can check out both of them. Uh, they're they're they've got um, pages up uh, in the English and writing programs at UW Green Bay, and um, you can search for the game. Remind me the name again. Sorry, I, I screw it up every time. Center for, for Games, games and Interactive Media. Did I do it? See Jim. Yep. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. There we go. So very good. And Georgina, tell people where to find you. I am at G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D, Georgina W-D. So find and me I, on all of the social media still until I take myself off them too. <laughs> and um, and Georgina's series, uh, Nature and Chill, is one of my favorite things that she does. You should check that out. It's videos of her and her dog hanging out in nature, which is really great. So, 
I am at Rye C. Mart in all of the places. Not only am I still on Twitter, I'm like doubling down on all of these things, even though I, I, I in many ways agree with what Chris said that I shouldn't be. So, um, all right. Uh, oh, and by the way, you can follow Psych and Stuff at all those places as well. So at Psych and Stuff, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, that's where you can see Hunter's fabulous work for us. Very good. Thank you both so much. We appreciate you being here. Psych and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. Our sound engineer for this episode is Sarah Miller. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Valise, and our intern is Hunter Garretts. Special thanks to our guests today, Dr. Chris McAllister Williams and Dr. Julie Case. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungess. Keep being amazing.